We are so grateful for the many of you who have submitted your pledges, uh, both to our annual budget effort as well as to our Open Palms Extra Mile campaign, and we uh, continue to receive them each day and grateful for that, and we encourage you, if you've not yet had the chance, to do so. I believe pledge cards are still available in your uh, pew racks, so take them home with you, or you can bring them to the church office and, or send them in the mail, but we will be graf- grateful to receive uh, your response to our needs here at Church of the Palms. We Interrupt This Program is uh, not only the title of this morning's sermon, but also the title of our Lenten series. As we make our journey through the Lenten season, we are mindful that Lent itself is somewhat of an interruption in the daily course of our lives. That's why we have seasons in the church life, so so that we can pause and remember not only the life of Christ, but we can also remember our own lives and those uh, moments when we perhaps should step aside from the typical routine of our lives to be focused on various uh, spiritual uh, growth challenges that we might have. So in this uh, season of Lent, we're going to be taking a look at various interruptions as they are found in the Bible and wondering together what those interruptions might mean for us as we take our journey with Jesus to the cross. So to that end, our scripture this morning is from the prophet Jonah, the book of Jonah, the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah sent out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God, and shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. It was November 19, 1977. 
It was the day of what they call the game. The greatest of all college football rivalries, some say the greatest of all sports rivalries, the Michigan-Ohio State football game. <laughs> a rivalry that lasts, has lasted over 100 years and a rivalry in which the University of Michigan has been dominant. <laughs> if you consider 54% dominant. So it is November 19, 1977, and at the small college I attended in Pennsylvania, I got together with my Ohio State friend, if there can be such a thing as an Ohio State friend, and we found the only TV on the campus that worked. Each dorm had one TV, and most of them didn't work. Yes, I am that old. Another, and we turned on at 12 noon ABC and prepared to watch in black and white, yes, I am that old, another epic gridiron battle. And just before kickoff, all of a sudden, what should flash on the screen but the dreaded words, special report. And then we heard the even more dreaded words, we interrupt this program for a special report from ABC News. My buddy and I looked at each other in disbelief. How can this be? How can there be a more important news event than the Michigan-Ohio State football game? The fate of the world rests on this game. Now, what they were interrupting us for was to show live the arrival of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to Israel, the first Arab leader to visit Israel in modern history, an epic first step toward establishing a lasting peace between two historic enemies, perhaps one of the most courageous steps by a world leader in our lifetime, a step that in the end caused Sadat his life. November 19, 1977 was one of the great days in Middle Eastern history. Now, you will not be surprised to hear that my friend and I did not appreciate this. <laughs> All we saw and felt was interruption. The resolution of the Israel-Egypt conflict paled in comparison to the resolution of the Michigan-Ohio State conflict. We were angry, we were frustrated, we felt betrayed, we banged our fists on the television because that always seems to work. We could not see what was taking place in front of us. We could not see the courage, we could not see the sacrifice, we could not see the peacemaking, we could not see something, someone taking a great risk with his life. The only thing we could see was interruption, an interminable, excruciating interruption. And it went on forever, forever. It went on for seven minutes. <laughs> we missed seven minutes of that game, a game, I might add, that Michigan won, but I digress. <laughs> we interrupt this program. You know, one of the hottest careers that a person could get themselves into these days, and it's been this case for a while, is the career of programming, computer programming, writing code, as they say. We are more and more a programmed society. We, everything is run by program, right? Computers run by program, phones run by program, traffic lights run by program, airlines run by program, checkout at the grocery store is run by program. More and more of our world and our lives are governed by program. Some code written somewhere in Silicon Valley 
And yeah, most of it's wonderful. I love punching my Starbucks app and having ready for me at the store a hot cup of coffee when I walk in. But with programming comes the rising expectation that if all is running according to program, then all is running well. If all is running according to program, then all is running right. If all is running in the direction I want it to be running in, then we are headed in the right direction. If all is going according to schedule, then that means my life is on course. If the code I've written for myself, or maybe one that's been written for me, remains unhacked, then all is well with the world. And the result of this is a closed system, an imprisoned world, a hibernated life. The result of all this is a mind and heart that sees interruption as enemy, that sees interruption as invader, that sees interruption as threat. Deviation from the plan, from the regularly scheduled program, becomes catastrophe. The unplanned visit of a person or event from the outside we see first as bad news before we can see it as good news. Because we are blind to anything outside of the brain. We are blind to anything outside of our world. We are blind to the possible goodness that might be coming from the outside. The program is to watch a dumb, oval-shaped piece of pigskin bounce around for three hours. Who cares about world peace? George MacLeod, the great 20th century Scottish saint, told the story of his little girl coming into his study just before leaving for her first ever day of school. She was coming to show him proudly her first school uniform. But the preacher was on schedule. He was busy finishing writing letters. He was running out of time. He was trying to stay with the program. She came into my room, McLeod recalls, in her first school uniform. And I, from my hurriedness, looked up. And all I could think to say was, your tie's not quite straight. And then I saw those eyes. I saw the eyes of utter disappointment. She didn't come for tie inspection. She was coming to share good news of her great day. And I missed it. I shall never forget those eyes. Sometimes we get into our own brains. Sometimes we get into our closed systems, our pre-programmed life, our imprisoned schedules and we fail to welcome the interruption of the visitor. We fail to see and greet and hear the ambassador of good news. In George Eliot's great story, Silas Marner, she tells the story of a man, Silas Marner, whose heart 
had grown cold from a series of hard knocks and so sets his life to making money through his weaving and in turn becomes this old, miserly, wealthy, lonely, and embittered man who sits in his house with his bag of gold coins protecting himself and his treasure from anyone who might come to steal it. And sure enough, someone comes and steals it. And now he has nothing. And every day he opens the door of his little house wide and stares into the outside through his old blurry eyes, hoping beyond hope that maybe somebody will bring the money back. One day as he's standing on the porch with the door open behind him, staring in an almost despondent trance, a little child manages to come behind him and through the door and she lays her down, herself down at the warmth of the fire inside his house. Silas doesn't notice, notice this. So Silas finally steps back into the house and through his old eyes he sees something before the fire and he can't quite make it out. The gold locks on the little girl's head for a moment make him think that, that the gold has returned. But then Silas realizes it's a little girl and Silas picks up the girl and brings her to his lap and holds her and tries to lull her to sleep. Eliot describes it this way, that Silas began to feel a certain awe in the presence of the little child, such as we feel before some quiet majesty or beauty in the earth or sky, before a steady growing planet or a full sweet buyer or bending trees over a silent pathway. Sometimes we just don't know how to take an interruption. I suppose it may be one of the points behind the story of Jonah. Most of us know the story of Jonah, at least part of it, the whale part. Jonah gets swallowed by a whale, a great fish, fish Scripture says. And, and maybe that's all that most people remember about Jonah. He ended up inside this whale. But there seems to be something a whole lot bigger going on in the Jonah story. And the big thing that's going on in Jonah's story is that God is trying to break into Jonah's story. God is trying to break into the world and bring about some redemption. God sees this group of people going off the rails and he wants to interrupt their program. God sees the Ninevites doing some wicked things and he wants to intercede, give them a second chance. And to do all this, though, God has to interrupt somebody else's life. God has to interrupt the life of Jonah. Jonah, God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and cry out against it. And Jonah pulls out his life itinerary and says, huh, huh, Nineveh's not, on the, not one of the stops. Isn't that something? I'm heading west, not east. This doesn't fit the program. So away Jonah goes, away from the presence of the Lord, Scripture says, and, then, and that's when the whale comes in, and it's the whale that gives Jonah the chance to reconsider, and it is reconsidering. Jonah begrudgingly accepts this inter interruption, reprograms his GPS, and goes east instead of west to Nineveh and warns the Ninevites that they better get their act together. Now, here's what's so interesting about this story. It's the Ninevites, the pagan, wicked Ninevites, it's the Ninevites, when interrupted by this crazy prophet preaching gloom and doom, it's the Ninevites who welcome the interruption. Figure that out. 
It's the pagans who welcomed the uninvited prophet. It's the heathens who embraced the change of plans. Well, on the other hand, it's the prophet, it's God's own guy, the religious guy, the card-carrying convert guy, who runs away. It seems to happen over and over again in the Bible, in the Good Samaritan story. It's the priest and the Levite who run from the beaten man. And the despised Samaritan who welcomes the interruption. It's the chief priest who strapped Jesus to the cross. And it's the Roman centurion who says, this man must have been a visitor from heaven. It's the cowardice of the spies that keep the Israelites from entering the promised land. But it's the courage of Rahab the prostitute who welcomes the arrival of the foreigners and assures them safe entry over and over and over again. It seems that the good Lord keeps trying to say that maybe God shows up not in the program, but in the interruption. Not in the preoccupation, not in the preconception, but in the strange new visitor, the strange new idea, the strange new event. Maybe it's the change of plans. That's the plan. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, God says in Isaiah. Are you not able to see it? Might it be our certainty, our pre-programming, our charted course, our tightly held conviction? Might it be that that is the very thing that gets in the way of God trying to do a new thing? Not that God perpetrates the interruption, but that the interruption opens us up, awakens us, and points us to maybe something we have always needed to learn, maybe something we have always needed to discover. A follower of Mahatma Gandhi confronted him once because he had heard him espouse something contrary to what he had espoused the week before. How can you say today the opposite of what you said last week? And Gandhi replied, simple, I have learned something since last week. <laughs> and don't you wonder if that isn't what the interruptions are about? Openings? into which the divine appears to tell us something we have yet to learn? That you thought life was that way. You thought God was that way. You thought people were that way. And all of a sudden, a knock comes to the door, and you open it, and it's the interruption. It's this new thing, this strange thing that you've never encountered before. And what you want to do is close the door. What you want to do is bar the door, double bolt the door. But it's the interruption, perhaps, God steps into inviting you and me to discover something deeper, deeper, deeper. It's 1987, 10 years after my cataclysmic football interruption. 19, 
87. I am two years into ordained ministry, serving my first church, still wet behind the ears, still trying to prove myself. And I had planned a Pentecost festival at our church on Pentecost weekend, the great story of the coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost festival. And there was going to be preaching and worship and dinners and lunches to last the course of the whole weekend. A lot has gone into this thing, and I needed to succeed to prove my mettle, to rescue me from my professional insecurity. The day before the festival, the phone call comes from my father to tell me that my far too young 63-year-old mother, a thousand miles away, has taken a turn for the worse. If you're going to come, he said, you better come now. But... But, but is this repeated word echoing in my brain, but the festival, the Pentecost festival, the program, not right now. No, Steve, right now. And so I go, of course leaving behind the best laid plans of mice and men, and join my brothers and father. And the four of us, all pastors, go to a place we've never been before. We've walked with other people's grief, but not our own. We've walked through the valley of the shadow, but now we have found our very own hollow. And we weep, and we ache, and we say goodbye, and we wonder why, why, why is it supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Why this awful interruption into the way life is supposed to be? For God's sake, my one and only child was five months from being born. We explore regions in our hearts we had not yet explored. And the spirit whose festival I had planned in Philadelphia has chosen to meet us in the devastating interruption a thousand miles away to teach us things we had not yet learned. Maybe it's the interrupted program that sends us searching for the heart of God. And in our searching, we find as well our own hearts. For we have much to learn about the mystery of our lives Maxie Dunham said it well in his poem, The Joy of Being. It costs a lot to be a person, to be human, to be loving, to respond to that life call that roars at the core of our being. It's all kind of helter-skelter. Life calls for death. Security demands risk. At-homeness requires abandonment. Love means hurt. Knowing is tenuous, for change is certain, and doubt dogs a seeker's steps. Dawn and darkness hold hands like lovers. To plunge into life completely is our baptism, and to dance with fellow plungers is our communion. Growth is the dynamic of true humanity, and joy of being is the reward. Or as John Lennon, that great theologian, wrote once, life is what happens 
when you're busy making other plans. May it be so. May it be so.